One of the things that people with ME-CFS say, I heard at a conference once, someone said that no one will care about this until they fear that they might get it, that this might happen to them. Welcome to the Chemical Sensitivity Podcast. It's a podcast that amplifies the voices of people with multiple chemical sensitivity, or MCS, also known as environmental illness, chemical intolerance, and toxicant-induced loss of tolerance, or TILT. The podcast also highlights emerging research about the illness. This episode features a conversation with Professor Emily Lim Rogers. Emily is a disability studies researcher and educator and specializes in myalgic encephalomyelitis, also known as chronic fatigue syndrome, or MECFS. She's currently the Mellon Postdoctoral Fellow in Disability Studies in the Department of American Studies, the Program in Science, Technology, and Society, and the Kogut Institute for the Humanities at Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island in the U.S. Emily is the author of the book Biomedicine's Binds, M-E-C-F-S, Debility and Incomplete Medicalization. To write the book, Emily conducted an extensive ethnographic study focused on activism among people with MECFS. It means she spent a lot of time with folks with the illness, observing them and talking with them about how they create awareness about MECFS and insists that more be done for people who are impacted by it. The most defining symptom of MECFS is known as post-exertional malaise, or PEM, P-E-M. Engaging in even mild exercise or mental activities can create significant crashes that can affect a wide range of symptoms in the body. The World Health Organization recognized MECFS in 1969. It estimates that around the world as many as 24 million people have the condition. In the U.S., it's believed up to 2.5 million people suffer from MECFS, according to the Institute of Medicine, which is part of the National Academy of Sciences. Yet most people with MECFS haven't been able to get a diagnosis. Many are dismissed by clinicians who often insist that just staying active and doing a bit of exercise could help them. But that can make things worse. And the real problem is that Doctors are insufficiently trained in order to understand and treat the illness. I invited Professor Rogers to speak on the podcast because folks with multiple chemical sensitivity face a lot of the same obstacles as people with MECFS. We're often told the illness is just in our heads. We're dismissed by clinicians and often by family members and friends. In our conversation, I asked Professor Rogers to talk me through some of the ways folks with MECFS have struggled to get the illness recognized, how people with MECFS and MCS are using social media to press for change, how capitalism creates major pressures for people with chronic illnesses, and how long COVID could ultimately potentially help open up paths for greater understanding about people with MECFS and hopefully MCS. I hope you enjoy the conversation and find it a benefit. We release new episodes twice a month. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It's a great way to help others learn about the podcast. And thanks so much for listening. 
So just to give an overview of what ME-CFS is, ME-CFS is a debilitating condition of unknown cause. It has no kind of single biological marker that's distinct that separates it from things like MCS and MCS shares that certainly. We can't just do a blood test and say you have it or you, you don't. So that creates this sort of socio-medical doubt surrounding both conditions. Many um, patient activists who I, who I study have kind of emphasized the specificity of the type of chronic fatigue that people with myalgic encephalomyelitis, aka chronic fatigue syndrome, what, what I'll call throughout this podcast ME-CFS. It's a specific symptom of what is called post-exertional malaise. So there's this disproportionate exhaustion that comes um, amongst other symptoms, such as sensory sensitivities or, or dysautonomic issues as well. After any form of exertion, whether it be emotional, cognitive, or usually usually physical. And it will often happen sort of not right after, but sometimes a day after they'll experience what what are called crashes. It's not rare, despite the fact that it is the most underfunded disease uh, per disease burden of any entity in the United States in terms of NIH funding. It's not rare. It's estimated up to 2.5 million Americans live with it. And that, to give an idea, is more than AIDS and multiple sclerosis combined. So that is a large number of people, but this number will likely quadruple in the aftermath of long COVID, which I know that um, we will get into at the end, but I, it's around half of patients with chronic symptoms after COVID meet the case definition for, for ME-CFS. So that's, uh, I hope that gives a little, little sense of some of the commonalities, but, you know, also sort of laying out the basics of what ME-CFS is. And you look and have been looking into ME-CFS in a very in-depth and fascinating way in your research. Also, could you share, is it a condition that you experience yourself? And also a parallel, do you also experience chemical sensitivity? One of the things I talk about in my research um, as I was writing up my my field notes, I looked at some field notes, I believe from 2017. And in the field notes, I described myself as an able-bodied ally who would help with physical things, you know, stacking chairs, things like that. Over the course of my field work, I actually developed a condition that is often comorbid with ME-CFS and shares a lot of the same symptoms. One symptom that's important about ME-CFS that I I neglected to mention is also this question of brain fog and um, cognitive lapses and, th and things of that nature, which can be quite debilitating, especially for those of us in knowledge work, right? And my understanding is that people with MCS often experience that as well. So for me, I developed orthostatic hypotension and I also developed, I got diagnosed with Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which is a connective tissue disorder. And on top of that, I did also get diagnosed with mast cell activation disorder, which I imagine has a lot to do with, I wouldn't be surprised if some of the pathophysiologies, right, are similar to chemical sensitivities. I certainly know that there are, you know, this laptop I'm on right now, it was off-gassing for a year. I mean, and so I would get rashes on my wrist and I would get, I opened the laptop, I got itchy all over my face. And these, I'm, I'm allergic to one of my friend's um, basements, which is unfortunate because she has a very cute house in Kingston, a very cute and old house with a, with a moldy basement. And so 
I am definitely chemically sensitive. It's been interesting though, because I only have sort of some triggers and I know that's common with multiple chemical sensitivities. One of the things we can talk about, right, is how often the symptoms are actually similar, but there are different paradigms for how we talk about them. I do think that these diseases can be distinct. At the same time, right, we don't have distinct biological markers to tell them apart. And we can also talk about what is what are the importances of distinguishing diseases? And at the same time, how can that perhaps erode coalition building, right, between groups that face similar challenges of sociomedical doubt, like I mentioned, and underfunding of, of research? And that's, of course, part of the reason that I'm on this podcast, right, in general, is to think about the overlaps between these diseases and the common struggles that they experience politically as well. Is ME-CFS a gendered illness in the sense that many people with the condition? I think 100% that it's it's gendered. There are more women who do have ME-CFS. And part of those reasons are, you know, because of the perhaps hormonal things. We know that for autoimmune disorders in general, cis women are more likely to experience them. However, there's this question of are men underdiagnosed? So the biological and social here, I think, are are never never fully separable. And I think that's something that I, I think about in my in my research. In the first chapter of my of my book project, I talk precisely about this gendering and racialization of chronic fatigue syndrome and what I call sort of a prehistory of this notion of chronic fatigue. And again, that's common. It's a symptom of MCS as well. And I think that even this very notion of chronic fatigue is gendered. You have, of course, in the 19th century, the paradigm of hysteria, right, which was which was gendered. Now, at the same time, you also had this diagnosis of neurasthenia, which some people tie to hysteria, but actually neurasthenia was sort of the respectable diagnosis that men got with this presenting with the same symptoms as women in, in, in the late 19th century. So one was respectable, the other was dismissible. Is hysteria the paradigm that we have today? It is and it isn't. Part of what I trace in my research is how stress and burnout are now the sort of prevailing paradigms for dismissing MECFS as essentially psychogenic in nature, not psychosomatic. We can talk about psychosoma. And I think that is real. I think that trauma can make, you know, for me, I know that areas that I've had trauma in historically, my, my pain is worse there. And I don't, that absolutely does not mean that this cause, that this was causal, right? You know, if you look at my connective tissue, you're going to see that it's not, it's not working properly, right? At the same time, these things can both be, be true. But so stress only became a widely accepted scientific paradigm in the late 1970s and, and 80s. That is around the same time that MCS, um, you know, if you look at Murphy's book, Sick Building Syndrome, right? This is when same time you have the feminist health movement, same time you have sick buildings, right? Because of changes in architectures, same time that you have a proliferation of plastics, right? And the same time that MECFS was first federally investigated by the CDC, which would be the 1984 uh, outbreak in Lake Tahoe. That was the first time there was sort of an official government recognition in, in the U.S. Is at least. And this is sort of going on at the same time. In, in Britain, for instance, I know less about the Canadian context, but in Britain, I know that it was like around the late 70s, 
So all of these things are colliding in ways that make for, for, for sort of a perfect storm to dismiss MECFS as it used to be called as yuppie flu. Now, they weren't that said they it was not said they were hysterics, although the specter of hysteria certain, certainly looms. But I think one of the things I want to think about is the more proximate discourse was one of stress and burnout, and it was applied disproportionately to white bourgeois women. That scales all the way up to who can get a diagnosis in a doctor's office. And part of what I talk about is this professional is women entering the professional classes en masse for the first time in U.S. history is also coinciding with this. Right. So then that you have a racialized component to that as well. I wanted to ask if the amount of toxins that we all experience in our everyday lives is one of the reasons we're seeing a greater number of people falling ill with conditions like chemical sensitivity. I mean, we know that, but is it, is it parallel? Is it similar also for CFS, the impact of toxins in the environment? I think certainly, I mean, I think certainly it is. For my own uh, diagnosis of uh, MCAS, mast cell activation syndrome, my, <laughs> my doctor, when I got diagnosed, I said, what's causing this? And she said, well, do you want the long answer or the short answer? And I said, I don't know, long? <laughs> she said, okay, so in the late 1970s, early 1980s, you have this proliferation of body, you have blah, 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 blah. And I was like, whoa. You know, as like a medical historian, medical anthropologist, I was like, this is, this is great. So in the MECFS community, I think it has been underemphasized. I think that they have focused a lot more on finding particular genetic markers. Uh, as MECFS uh, uh, outbreaks very, very similar to MECFS have, have occurred throughout history. Uh, there was one in Iceland in the 1930s. There was one at the Royal Free Hospital in London in 1955. So obviously these were before some of the, some of the things that we've been, we've been talking about. There is the paradigm that essentially it's a virus that triggers this pathological response in the body for reasons that we don't know. It reactivates other viruses, causing these systemic neuroimmune effects. So that's sort of the paradigm for MECFS. But the question is why? Why are more bodies experiencing that response to an otherwise benign uh, or, or, or acute, let's say, virus? Right, that MECFS is defined by profound exhaustion and creates significant impairment. Despite this persistent fact, MECFS has over its four decades of existence struggled to be taken seriously. Decades of dismissiveness have led to several repercussions. There's no, I'm summarizing now, there's no political urgency, meaning that research is underfunded. Does that remain to be the case? Well, it has been the case for so long that it then has repercussions in the present. One of the reasons to potentially be optimistic is the ways that MECFS is receiving more coverage in the news than it has since, by my estimation, as someone who did a lot of archival research, since 1990, and that's because of long COVID. But just to back up for a second in terms of those four decades of dismissal that MECFS has had since its formal uh, recognition by, by the CDC, as I mentioned before, it is what I call recursive. The process is what I call recursive because without political urgency, there is no funding for things like treatments. But then without treatments, the ability to advocate for the disease becomes really difficult. And I think there's a similar 
I've seen from long COVID activists a similar phenomenon going on where people are so disappointed because they want to be stronger advocates, but they are, they live in exhausted bodies. And as I said, bodies that crash after almost any form of exertion, whether it's writing an email to a state representative. I mean, I was in meetings in my field work where someone said that was all I could do all day, right? And so this is a kind of vicious cycle here. With long COVID, yes, there are more mentions of MECFS. Their pathophysiologies might end up being really similar. But I have to say, the research on this is starting now. You know, the funding starting now. Imagine if we had had four decades of research, of sustained research on post-viral illness, how much of a better position we would be in now to treat long COVID. And so a lot of the patient activists that I've been working with since 2016, and many of them have been sick since the 80s, there is some resentment there because they were not taken seriously before. Now they're at least taken a little bit seriously, but we might have the question of, long COVID, I'm, you know, you could be more or less optimistic about it compared to MECFS. There is more stuff going on. There are long COVID clinics across the country. There's only a handful of clinicians for MECFS across the country, and there's only really one or two clinics for it, and they're both on the coasts. So who can access those is, is you know, a really important, um, important question. So decades of underfunding are kind of going to bite us back. You write, met with fogginess, an invisible illness, disbelieving families, social isolation. People with MECFS are not in the best positions to advocate for themselves. And they are also frequently without people to advocate on their behalf. How are folks with MECFS? And if we could also talk about folks with chemical sensitivity, because I think this is one of those places where there's a lot of overlap, right? Um, how do folks with chronic illness best advocate and, be, and uh, become activists when uh, there are so many challenges just doing that? One of the things I think about a lot in my research as someone who is trained in, in an interdisciplinary environment, including gender and sexuality studies, I think a lot about patient positionalities. With MECFS, you have this challenge where most people don't get diagnosed till middle age. And like I said, most people with MECFS are women. This patient profile is precisely positioned as caregivers rather than people in positions who to receive care. A lot of them are in the squeeze generation, right? They're caring for their older parent, aging parents, and they have kids. And I mean, who is going to support them when they're the ones expected to give all the care? And so I've seen gender differences in my research where um, sometimes men have more support from their families. This is, of course, not universal, and I wouldn't even say it's common, but it's a gender dynamic that uh, that I did notice there are some some differences there. With MCS, I don't know uh, what the general demographic is. But I think the point is that when you have an invisible illness that isn't validated by biomedicine, you have trouble with even just interpersonal belief, not only the medical doubt, but interpersonal belief. And that is what makes it so difficult. So, uh, you know, Faye Ginsburg and Raina Rapp's work, for instance, is about parents of disabled children, right? The children are the ones that live in debility. The parents are often able-bodied, right? So the parents are the sort of natural advocates 
I mean, not natural in the sense of I'm not biologizing this, right? But in the sense of their social position. With MECFS, again, you, you don't quite, quite have this sort of able-bodied ally, right? Consider HIV AIDS as well. Why was activism surrounding HIV AIDS successful? One of the reasons was that you mobilized a demographic of young people who would be, who had, would have, for instance, pre-symptomatic HIV infection or who saw themselves as people who could get the disease. And so they were people who had to be invested in this. One of the things that people with MECFS say, uh, I heard at a conference once, someone said that no one will care about this until they fear that they will get, that they might get it, that this might happen to them. And a lot of the sort of state senators or various people who sign or initiate bills on it, it's because a family member of them had has MECFS. So if you can't see, you can't see the illness. Of course, people with MECFS have, have pushed back on this notion of invisible because sometimes they they're lying in bed. They're quite, quite ill and they look ill, right? So there, you know, there's some complications surrounding that. But when it's something that people can't see, they don't see it as something they should be concerned about. Long COVID, it could change a lot of this. We'll see because everyone sees themselves as being able to get COVID right now, nowadays, of course, especially with Omicron. So that's why long COVID, if you've noticed, long COVID has become more in the discourse since Omicron. Some of that I at first thought was because Omicron's mild. People want to counter the narratives that Omicron is mild by saying, oh, there's still the risk of long COVID. But, you know, actually, when we were in Delta, for instance, people who are vaccinated thought, oh, I won't get infected with COVID, <laughs> right? Now that everyone sees themselves as being able to be infected by COVID or almost seeing it as inevitable, oh, no, long COVID could happen to me. A post-viral syndrome could happen to me. MECFS is adjacent to those conversations. They're not the same. But again, as I, as I stated, around half of people with long COVID could get diagnosed with MECFS. You talked a little bit about HIV and AIDS activists who were, and to a degree, are still routinely stigmatized. And you, I believe you argue that activists who have MECFS are inspired by, mm -hmm. uh, by these activists. Um, why is that the case? And what do you think folks with other chronic illnesses, including chemical sensitivity, can take from, can learn from activists, you know, around HIV and AIDS? What can we learn from them as we continue to engage and inform and ask for change? So I'm going to give an optimistic answer and then I'll give a pessimistic answer. The optimistic answer and, and why people with MECFS have been inspired by HIV AIDS activism, one, it was very successful, of course. I think, too, you have um, the issue of stigma that you mentioned. Now, the stigma might work different ways, does work different ways for different patient profiles, right? There's There still is stigma around HIV AIDS, but there was serious, obviously, at the time there in the in the 80s at the beginning. And remember, these movement, the, the, the advent of MECFS is contemporaneous with the 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 discovery of, H, of HIV, actually. Those happened in the same year, 1984 the official government recognition of CFS and, and the discovery of HIV. So these are thoroughly contemporaneous. I think that's part of why, right, the activism has been intertwined. So there, there's the issue of stigma, but they're stigmatized in different directions, right? People with MECFS are stigmatized as people who shouldn't get ill. You're not really ill. You're not really diseased. And gay people are pre-stigmatized as people who are sick, right? At least, at least in the 80s, right? People who are sick. 
Third, you have governmental neglect in both that I think operated in the same way. Drugs into bodies, right? You have that with the HIV AIDS activism. And then with MECFS, you have we need treatments, right? So it's pushing these governmental agencies to do something. But as I said, MECFS does not have that same political urgency as HIV activists were able to achieve, in part because they don't die dramatic deaths, right? They, they, what is the, what is the sort of most impairing part of MECFS is social isolation, right? So instead of being in the streets, their social isolation is the main, it's not dramatic deaths, but it's what people with MECFS might call themselves the living dead, right? So it's not mortality. You don't have the, the, you know, a year after an, after an AIDS diagnosis, you die, right? With MECFS, what, it's what I call this protracted state of debility where the present persists, the chronicity persists in this way that that is debilitating rather than these gruesome dramatic deaths that you had in the 80s. So that brings me to my pessimistic answer, which is about the fact that how do you get out of this? How do you get out of this knot that's created? where the most debilitating factor, one of the most at least, is social isolation, is the inability to participate in public life, right? How do you create activism around that? It's hard to get bodies in the streets, right? Um, someone told me during my fieldwork, there was a protest at Central Park, and he asked what, what it was about. And I said it was about MECFS. It has been neglected for a while. It, it actually is serious. He said if it were really serious, there would be hundreds of people out here, not just dozens. So then the, it becomes hard and for people to see that political urgency in the same way. And that's why we need a reorientation of what illnesses count as real and how we adjudicate this is real or this is not real. And that is a big commonality with MCS. Similarly, MCS, right, there might be public spaces that are inaccessible to them. So we need to understand the ways that illness intersects with public space and the ability to inhabit public space and then and then uh, advocate, right? And you talked about the challenges of activism, right, being out in public spaces. And we know for folks with MECFS and chemical sensitivity, that can be very challenging. I wanted to ask you about what your thoughts are about internet activism, because I follow a lot of folks with MECFS and a lot of people post images of themselves in their homes, in bed. And so that makes it very visible for me. And in the same, in a parallel way, a lot of folks with chemical sensitivity are using the internet in really compelling ways to inform and educate and are being activists. Do you feel that there's reason to hope that this kind of online activism can create awareness about about these illnesses and lead to more funding, more research, more accommodation, and more? I think that social media has been a big part of why MECFS activism has started to take off in, say, the past decade. It really, really has. Key organizations that were more politically uh, willing to put themselves out there were formed around that time, uh, ME Action being one of them, big one of them. So the internet has been a crucial link for people with MECFS, not only to make social ties with one another, but also to create activist worlds. And that's something I talk about in my, in my research. Now, I'm sort of thinking alongside media studies scholars, right? Is there the siloedness of it that you get through algorithms? And that's something where 
it's a little bit out of my wheelhouse with the technical language, but I have colleagues who work on Twitter and the the ways that sometimes you only see what you want to see. Sometimes Twitter can be in, in, in an echo chamber. So there are differences. I've written a lot about virtual ethnography and, and stuff like that. And I say that with ethnography, right? We can't understand online worlds as inferior proxies to what we really want to study, right? So I'm, and, and similarly to, to parallel that with activism, I, this is real activism. It really does do stuff, especially in bringing people together who otherwise would not, in, in organizing people essentially. So as a tool of organizing, I think it's really important whether or not it has an effect on the public that's the same as shoving a sign in their face and making them see you. I'm not going to say it's the same because it's not. However, in terms of this question of invisible illness to revisit that, part of what it's doing is making invisible illness visible. And that is something that is important to cultivate the political urgency that would be needed to really fund ME-CFS and better the lives of people with ME-CFS alongside other chronic illnesses. I wanted to talk a little bit about one area of your research, uh, and you write about the implications of capitalism for folks with chronic illness. And because the, the capitalist nature of our society dictates the number of uh, the rules around the number of hours we have for working, for sleeping, I wanted to ask you what happens when people cannot or do not fit into these rules and systems? So you write, society imposes strict constraints on walking and sleeping that leave behind those who are literally offbeat, out of sync with the rhythms of the working day. An appreciation of the multiplicity of different types of sleepers becomes in this account of a casualty of capitalism. So are folks, like many of the listeners of this podcast with chemical sensitivity and folks with MECFS, are we casualties of capitalism how do we make it work in in this system that is so it seems to be so inflexible in so many ways yeah definitely this question of um casualties of capitalism the um thing about capitalism is that it naturalizes fatigue jonathan stern in this new book great book diminished uh, faculties in the fifth chapter also does a similar sort of history of capitalism that i um, giving an overview of in the book, in that first chapter I mentioned about the gendering and racialization of fatigue, he leverages this concept of normal impairments. There are certain things that we just accept, right? We accept a degree of, if we're in front of a computer all the time, yes, we will grow uh, nearsighted. That's, you know, if we accept, uh, you know, there's no truck restrictions on this street, our hearing will go, or if we um, are allowed to have high-powered uh, hand dryers he talks about. These things are going to impair everyone, to almost everyone, to some degree, but we accept them. Now, he adds not only these sensory impairments, but the very question of fatigue. We accept fatigue as a normal, some degree of fatigue as a normal state of capitalism, right? Fatigue itself did not enter English language medical journals until the last decade of the 19th century. And it was thoroughly caught up in industrialization. And what happens during industrialization is, and modernity in general, right, is the standardization of time. But importantly, what happens is hourly wage labor, right? So as opposed to things like piecework. So everyone is brought, and this is invoking Matthew J. Wolfmeyer's book in The Slumbering Masses as well, under this condition of time, under these regimes of time that 
your livelihood and your participation in society are are um, are uh, at stake here. So, for instance, right, if people with MECFS expend the same amount of energy, for them, full time work is say twenty hours for for a sort of mild to moderate MECFS patient. But they still get paid the same. They still get paid half of what someone who could work forty hours a week will get paid, right? So the rigidity of the working day, I think. This is not what causes MECFS. So just to, just to, uh, think about what is actually casualty here of capitalism. I certainly wouldn't say, I mean, Jonathan Stern would say that some degree of fatigue is sort of a casualty of capitalism. Uh, I would agree with that with MECFS, which is a specific debilitating illness. What I would say is the casualty here is the ability to see it as an illness and to accommodate it because we dismiss it as that's just normal. That's just burnout. That's just stress. Everyone has chronic fatigue. We're all tired, right? But that's not the case here. Well, and, but why are we all tired? You know, Stern would argue and I would argue too. We're tired because of capitalism. So ultimately what I'm thinking about is how the normal kind of edges out the pathological here, right? If we normalize chronic fatigue, we do not see this particular debilitating disease. And that's the same thing with, with MCS, I would imagine, right? Is that like a lot of people have reactions to everything and that we've also naturalized chemicals in our environment, right? And so I think the casualty here is the dismissal of these illnesses. And just building what you're sharing, folks with chemical sensitivity often are excluded from the workplace or school and other places, right? Because of the way that capitalism is intertwined with the use of everyday toxins that harm everyone, but we just can't be around. So we're excluded. And what's happening recently, maybe following, and I think it's on a lot of people's minds and radars, is in Canada, we have medically assisted dying. It's a constitutional right. And there have been, there's been one instance of a person who had medical assistance in dying with, uh, she had severe chemical sensitivity and there are at least a couple others who have applied to it. Capitalism is not providing adequate or safe housing for them. So the only alternative that they see is medical assistance in dying. So that's another casualty of capitalism, would you say? Oh, absolutely. And, um, with MECFS, it's, it's, it's very, I mean, it's really, really tragic because suicide is one of the leading causes of death. It is not because people with MECFS are depressed per se, although they might be depressed because of MECFS. It's because the lack of viable ways of living in the world in a world that values bodies for their ability to be productive and that uses, um, for the MCS example, that uses toxins and values profit over people. And with things like housing, we don't want, we dismiss these diseases in part because we don't want to do the things that we would need to actually take care of people. And that is an instance of valuing profit over people. Of course, in the US, we have a for-profit healthcare system, which is a whole other question about capitalism, where your ability to get treated is just so stratified. There are struggles everywhere. The NHS, for instance, is like, you just need to go to therapy and exercise, which make no sense. And exercise actually makes it worse for MECFS, right? There's no effort to actually tackle these things because they would require reimagination of our world and what we value. It's a capitalism problem for sure. And it's a biopolitical problem because I'm often asked, because I'm I'm an Americanist, right? I work on the US because there are so many particularities to how healthcare works here. And I asked, oh, well, what's it like in uh, the context of a European context, for instance? 
they face similar problems because maybe the problem is capitalism, right? And the ways that we want to manage bodies according to standardized ways of living. It's been really fascinating listening to you. Thank you so much. I just want to recap a little bit about what we chatted about. We talked about, you provided a very uh, helpful overview of ME-CFS. We talked about some of the major symptoms, the fact that folks, just like people with chemical sensitivity, are often misdiagnosed. You talked about ME-CFS being highly gendered, underfunded. We talked about capitalism and how it excludes people with chronic illness. You talked a bit about activists who have ME-CFS or trying to create awareness and create change. And I think there's some information there that will be really relevant for folks with chemical sensitivity. You talked about the implications of long COVID and that could potentially lead to more people in the medical profession accepting, acknowledging chronic illness like ME-CFS and chemical sensitivity. And I wanted just to, as we move towards wrapping up our chat, again, thank you again for, for joining me and for sharing. And is there anything else you'd like to share? I would like to share that we are approaching a wave of disability, as everyone calls it. And MCS and MECFS share the same awareness month and actually even day, perhaps. That is because of the really important coalition building that did happen at one point, I think, especially in the 90s. But then there's this need for Western biomedicine to categorize us into separate boxes in order to be legitimately ill. I would say that going forward, especially with the variety of things that people with long COVID actually end up getting diagnosed with, right? POTS, MECFS, what have you. We need real coalition building if we're going to figure this out. And we really need to figure this out. And we need to listen to, to disabled people and figure out what it would take for everyone to be able to have a livelihood in this world. You talk about a wave that we're going to face, a wave of chronic illness, right? Mm -hmm. And you write that is not just tied to a single biomarker, but to larger scale changes in our environments, food systems, antibiotic use, etc. So is there more in common perhaps between these illnesses that we often do not see? I think that our immune systems have been modulated. <laughs> you know, these things, we know they act on our immune systems. And I think that some patient activists, especially the ones that are really focused on research and, you know, there are other groups that are more focused on how do we, as disabled people, support each other, take care of each other, right? There's a variety of flavors of activism. The type of activism that I studied in my research, one of the things that I found is, I've, I've phrased it this way, that separating out disease categories is both necessary and perilous. It is necessary because in the eyes of biomedicine, we need disease specificity, right? If it's going to be real or something like that. We need to be able to run randomized controlled trials where people with comorbidities might literally be excluded from the study, evidence-based medicine, all of these things that make it complicated when actually there are just so many factors here that we don't pay attention to. So that is definitely um, one, one uh, commonality. Now, it's perilous separating out disease categories because you might erode coalition building and that these diseases you might get wrapped up in the same regimes that you're actually trying to counter, right? It's perilous because they can become balkanized, these chronic illness groups. I'm actually really optimistic, though, after seeing long COVID, because this is just this actually kind of an umbrella right, that can gather m multiple groups with different stakes in this because of their individual illness. 
There's also the issue of we're fighting for crumbs of funding here. They're fighting for crumbs, and that's why it's balkanized. You need to support this one. No, 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 support this one, support this one. It's as if there's um, infighting because we've created false scarcity. We could be funding all of this. We could have been funding all of this really well the entire time. But if you don't value it, if you don't see it, then you're not going to. And then so everyone's just fighting for these little crumbs. Long COVID might change a lot of this, right? And, you know, unfortunately, as, as I mentioned earlier, so many people don't take a disease early, seriously unless they think it can happen to them. More and more people today are seeing themselves as people who might become disabled. Now, there's a lot of disavowal of that in our in our very, very contemporary moment with the current wave that we have. There is a disavowal, I do want to say that, that so many people think, well, long COVID can't happen to me, it can't happen to me. But you, in earnest, right, empirically, we have a lot more people. Just the scale of COVID is so different. It's so large. There's this question of scale as well. When you have a mass disabling event, what will that do? Will that change and push for funding and, and more awareness of, of these diseases? Well, thank you very much, Professor Rogers, for everything you shared. Thank you, Aaron, so much for having me on. I really enjoyed this conversation and hopefully this dialogue between MECFS and MCS and just putting them together can illuminate some of the really important things that we need to think about in our current moment, especially. That brings us to the end of this episode of the Chemical Sensitivity Podcast. Thank you very much to Professor Emily Lim Rogers for speaking with me. Podcast is produced by me, Aaron Goodman, and Kiana Holland. We release new episodes twice a month. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It's a great way to help others find the podcast. Follow us on social media. Just search for the Chemical Sensitivity Podcast or Podcasting MCS. If there's someone you'd like to hear interviewed on the podcast or a topic you'd like us to explore, just let me know. Email me at info at And thanks so much for listening.